Welcome back. It's another Red Star Radio interview for you today. And I'm joined again uh, by Matteo Capasso today, who uh, you might have heard us talk to him in the past with regard to his book on uh, the Gaddafi period in Libya. But he's here today to talk about the uh, ongoing events in what I think we should refer to as occupied Palestine and its uh, significance in terms of the global uh, imperialist system, which, of course, the U.S. sits at the center of and Britain sits to the left hand side of the United States <laughs> and sort of a horrific junior partner. Uh, Matteo, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alex. Thanks to, for uh, having me again. Well, uh, I wanted to start off just by asking uh, what appears to be a basic question, which is the events of October the 7th, uh, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, as the Palestinian National Liberation Forces refer to it. Yeah. Was that something that um, took you by surprise? Because it certainly took me by surprise. Yes, it definitely did. I mean, uh, uh, and and if it did took us by surprise, we can only imagine how much it took by surprise the Israeli government. Mm. On October 7th, uh, what we've seen is uh, is the attempt of the Palestinians to reclaim their own place in history. In a way, you know, uh, what we're seeing is the entrance of uh, what many of us have been calling multipolarity, if that's the right terms to use. We can decide, we can discuss about it. But uh, what basically is happening is that the Palestinians, uh, with uh, under the likes of a group like Hamas, have decided to basically join this new historical moment, a moment uh, that sees the decline of US imperialism and the rise of the global South. What happened is that uh, we've seen 2,000, 3,000 Palestinian fighters uh, uh, from various political factions, despite, as you very well know, you know, the mainstream media just keeps singling out and referring only to Hamas. But what we've seen instead is the a coordination of various political factions, such as the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Democratic Front and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, coordinating with the main group being Hamas, but not being the only one, and decided to launch a military operation, a resistance operation, in uh, in the southern occupied territory of, uh, of Palestine. And, uh, you know, this is basically uh, was an operation that certainly, not certainly, definitely took Israel by surprise. What we've seen is uh, they were able to get through the, the barrier and broke the uh, b built by Israel, the, the entire wall. We've seen all these videos released by Qassam Brigades, through which, you know, the Palestinians were able to break the wall of, uh, of the siege, get into the military uh, bases of Israel surrounding uh, Gaza. And uh, in the process... And this is something that must really be, you know, highlighted. You know what we've been the 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 reaction of the of the mainstream media was to basically uh, not just single out Hamas, but basically define to compare Hamas with ISIS, and so high Gaza is ISIS, Hamas is ISIS. So to prepare the ground for the Zionists and the imperialists to basically wipe out Gaza off the earth. But what we've seen instead is it was that this is a 
basically Hamas and all these factions in this historical moment represent, they come to incarnate, what we could say, the the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. And I think we've seen uh, on the side of, uh, forget about the fascists on the mainstream media, what we've seen is also how much the Western left has really struggled to accept that uh, an Islamic-led movement was at this historical moment is uh, incarnating uh, the anti-imperialist spirit of the region. And to understand that, obviously, we have to go back into history and all that. But what we've seen also from a military point of view has been the capacity to outdo, to, you know, to surprise the most technological army in the region and probably in the world, the most financed Israeli army. And in the process, the Israel has, uh, has, uh, has responded to the operation on the same day, uh, relying on the Dahia doctrine, which is this doctrine that the Israelis developed in the 1980s, where basically they they decide to respond to an, uh, an attack and a military challenge by shooting indiscriminately on everything, as long as they kill the enemy. And in this process, despite you know the call for uh, uh, all the fake, the propaganda that we heard that uh, Hamas has uh, killed and beheaded babies, uh, raped women, what we have seen is actually incinerated bodies of Hamas fighters and Israeli civilians, which were actually killed by the same Israeli army. So, you know, we're not saying that obviously it was a military operation. There were civilian victims on the side. I mean, there were victims on the side, settler, Israeli settlers who were killed by Hamas, certainly, and by the other factions. But, you know, we are unable to speak about the fact that the Israeli themselves committed most of the atrocities on that day by replying and activating the famous Dahiya doctrine. Yes, and the the shock that the um, the Palestinian armed forces delivered to the Israeli uh, political establishment um, helps explain, I think, the the level of brutality with which that the the Israelis have responded with, uh, because they they were exposed um, militarily uh, yeah. because the, all of their boasts about having the most technologically advanced army in the world that nothing could beat them that they were invincible it all fell apart because faced with these uh well-organized and determined fighters from gaza a lot of these supposedly amazing israeli army units just um either were quickly defeated surrendered or ran Mm -hmm. away Mm -hmm. and so the image of the uh, colonial state as immortal uh, was fatally damaged, and now they have to try and restore that image. But in my view, that that has that that image has gone forever. I think a whole generation of uh, Palestinians is now seeing that the not only can Israel be beaten, but it can be humiliated in a um, in a in a stand up fight, and that the only way it can hope to respond is by killing large numbers of civilians. Or well, what do you think of that? Absolutely. I mean, Alex, I completely agree with you. What uh, Al-Aqsa flawed, Tawafan Al-Aqsa has uh, unleashed is really um, a battle for liberation of Palestine, which I think, considering how Israel and its uh, ruling classes and also the, 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 the settler population had so gotten used to, which was, uh, you know, this kind of supervising an occupation. You know, supervising, humiliating, bullying, day-to-day bullying and supervising an occupation, killing Palestinians, you know, and we see the numbers keep rising and turning and the the society turns more and more fascist until 7th of October comes and boom, 
the entire uh, colonial status and invincible status, as you were saying, of the Zionist entity of Israel is completely shattered. And yes, this is how we need to understand under this premises why the, the genocidal drive you know that uh, has characterized the response of the of Israel supported obviously in the operation room because we should never forget that when we talk about Israel we're talking about uh, the US and Europe administering that war as well mm. uh green lighting the gen you know this ethnic cleansing and genocide that is taking place but you know even when we use these words we know there is a genocide taking place but at the same time militarily they're not achieving anything in their response Yes, it's exactly the right point to emphasize, which is that the if you examine the history of um, colonial uh, regimes when they come under attack from national liberation movements, the response, whether it's uh, what we talked about the last time we spoke, which is the the Italian um, suppression campaigns in Libya in the twenties mm. and thirties, Mussolini's forces in Abyssinia in the thirties, Britain, well, all over the world, uh, but particularly in a place like Kenya in the 1950s, um, France in Algeria and in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. um, the response is always the same, which is that there is a huge wave of repression and mass killing takes place. Um, for instance, um, I'm currently doing a reread of mm -hmm. Wretched of the Earth by Fanon, and he mentions specifically like the massacres that the French committed in 1945. Whilst World War II was still going on, the great hero de Gaulle authorized <laughs> like the killing of 40 odd thousand, maybe more uh, Algerians in response to just like a, a, a small amount of like na um, national sentiment being expressed in Algeria. Um, possibly 200,000 being killed in Madagascar later in the 1940s. So this level of brutality, this level of like mass murder, this is how colonial regimes always respond, because they can once the um, any authority that they had has gone, the, the the native population no longer respects their their conquerors. Then all they have is mass murder to try and restore themselves, don't they? Uh, absolutely, but in fact, if you allow me to say that, there is you know it. It takes certainly a lot of uh, ideological propaganda to hide one of the most glaring facts of what I would call Western civilization, which is the slaughter of the masses of the global South. Has always yes. been the prime industry of capitalist and uh, you know and Western values since the 14th century. I mean, mm -hmm. the when to to put it you know more simply, Western values drip in blood. You know. Uh, we, and by we, I don't mean me and you, but Westerners love to fill our mouth with words like democracy, peace, international law, and we do. And, you know, once, you know, when you are the one who has won militarily the battle, it is normal to do so. But what is not normal is how we pretend that these values are simply the outcome of progress, be peace, benevolence, whereas these values literally drip in blood, in in, in war, in dirt, you know, as you were mentioning, the genocide of the Americas. And on this point, you know what it's interesting as well, Lali, that there is actually a continuity between uh, the, the idea of the flood and, uh, and the importance of, uh, of the spiritual element for the fight of the, uh, of the oppressed and the colonized. 
back if you look back at, uh, uh, at what happened in the in the americas there was the, there was the the ghost dance which was the the, the indian american the native indians had launched uh, uh, a, st- a struggle against the occupiers back then and they relied on the spiritual element the idea of the ghost dance and it was the the idea of the ghost dance was not just that we need to go back to our religion and dance and all that but a flood would come to wipe the colonizers off the earth and it's interesting that, that the flood come back, comes back now in 2023. And again, it's explaining what to us, that the centrality of the spiritual element to mobilize the masses, to fight back against the colonizers, and also to mobilize a different revolutionary humanism, that humanism that the West is revealing doesn't have anymore. By looking mm-hmm. at how, you know, it has completely evaporated all kinds of values that the West is claiming to have, peace, international law, whatever they want to, you know, stuff their mouth with, you see it completely evaporated in Gaza. And everybody can see this. And this is a remarkable moment because, you know, once an existential threat has been, uh, you know, has been, uh, uh, has been uh, un- 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 unleashed, on, on the West, and uh, and there is a centrality, obviously, we will talk about, of Zionist, of the Zionist entity to, to the imperialist uh, web. Once that mm. existential, th- uh, you know, threat, it's, it's coming, uh, uh, is being materialized, they really show the true values, what they represent. And in this historical moment, boom, what we're seeing is just this genocidal de- tendency. We're going back where basically we started off. Yes, I mean, if you look at the um, the claims to universalism of Enlightenment thought, so in, in for instance, um, in British terms, John Locke and people like that in the 17th and 18th century, when they talk about the universality of values and the um, you know the uh, the need for uh, constitutional government, the rights of man, etc the the term man very much refers to one very small specific group of men it wow. means property owners it yes. means the early bourgeois it does not mean it doesn't even mean the domestic working class at the time um it certainly doesn't mean those who are colonized and those who are enslaved um and over time they due to various pressures they had to make reforms in the imperial core countries to make it look as if they were uh, applying this you talk of universality to at least the domestic working class population but it never applied outside it never applied in the colonized world um which is what um one of the, what um one of it's what john paul sartre refers to in his introduction to wretched of the earth when he's talking about how we um the British, the French, the Italians, the the colonizers go around the world and, like as you say, stuffed in these words into the mouths of uh, trained native elites that we wanted to have do the management for us. Mm-hmm. But even they saw that, like the level of um, uh, racialism, of um, like sheer naked brutality of the exploitation uh, inflicted upon the colonized world, meant that those values became like were empty and meaningless even to people that we'd tried to so-called educate in our (laughs) ways you know Mm -hmm. even to them it became empty and they a lot of them joined the original liberation movements Mm -hmm. so like the as you say the the 
the global south or whichever way you want to describe it that area of the world has been subject to imperialism mm-hmm. um to them the values have always been bullshit to use a crude term yes. um the the problem for us is that i think that the the period of social democratic reform in europe and britain in the 40s and 50s and 60s i think it gave many generations even in the working class um a false idea of what their country is and what their relationship with the ruling class is and that's something that we in the european space desperately need to overcome because what's inflicted upon the global south today in the end they will bring all that violence back home to secure themselves i think bravo i agree with you i completely mm. agree and this is what it's showing you know that and uh, and it's important to emphasize i think two points on uh, you know following up on on your very wise words particularly in, in the last what you said at, at the end because um, first what's happening in palestine it's not it's not only the liberation of palestine it's not just a battle for the liberation of palestine the palestinians as per history's mandate they are fighting and they're reigniting a war about humanity and this is where we really need to understand that we uh, our future is at stake as well here is the future of the geopolitical order and of humanity as a whole and that's why you know i think we've seen a lot of people going down you know, going out in the streets to protest but also there is many more that they need to understand that uh, that this battle it's really about what kind of society we want in the future it's uh, and and the second point that i want to emphasize which are it's connected to this one is that once we understand that the battle for the liberation of Palestine is goes beyond the mere liberation of a piece of land and then a territory, and it includes us all as a humanity, because this is a war on humanity and the same idea of humanism, as you rightly said. We need to really stop having an understanding of what's happening right now in Gaza through identity politics. It has nothing. Mm. To, it is not just Israel, Palestine, Muslims against uh, Jews, or you know, this is really like. It's so like uh, uh, useless, theoretically, strategically, and politically for all of us who want to understand the the kernel of this war and the, and how significant it is. Because it's basically, you know, we need to go back as as communists, as Marxists, to historicize this, to insert these events into a practical historical process, into material facts, not just abstract categories that, uh, as you very well know, Western Marxists often pick and choose, you know, this is, uh, you, this is the resistance should do this, the resistance should do that. The facts are telling us that the Palestinians have launched a major strike to a key element of US imperialism in the region. Hmm. In doing that, if we connect what's hap- what happened in Ukraine once Russia launched this o- operation, and then we look at what happened now in, uh, in, uh, in Palestine, where if we start putting all these elements together, we can see that we're leaving a, an historical movement of immense magnitude, which mm. is going to lead, because this is part of the process, and it's going to be very bloody and certainly fascist here in the Western core, to a reconfiguration of the geopolitical order. And uh, this is why we're seeing, you know, it's a 
a very it's an unprecedented campaign of not just from a military point of view where we've seen where we have seen the genocidal killing uh, uh, undertaken by Israel in Gaza but it's also a war on information it's also a war on the media it's a war on all and on each and every one of us who's trying to basically speak th- back to power that they were trying to tell the truth and you've seen this happening you know in uh, in the UK in uh, in Italy in you know, all over the western you know in the Western core, the amount of propaganda that we are, that we are witnessing and the amount of fabricated lies that are used to justify this genocidal drive. And this Mm. is what, you know, it's all these forces being brought together on October 7th that have been unleashed and that really tell us why we must pay close attention to what is happening, but also understand what is our role in this battle. Well, that's a good point to develop further because the when you talk about what our role can be, because I think that there is a lack of understanding, even on, even amongst people who consider themselves anti-imperialist, as to what role Israel plays for yeah. the U.S.-led system. Yeah. And I think that you need to we need to understand this properly because you saw we saw after the October the seventh, the United States and Britain and France and Italy rush um, a veritable (laughs) armada to the Eastern Mediterranean in a way they haven't done before. They didn't even do that openly in 1973, Um, though the US, of course, did resupply Israel with munitions in 1973. (laughs) Um, But to, to come out this openly with this like naval expeditionary force to make all these threats to Iran and to Hezbollah, that that was meant to be a projection of strength. To, the way I was reading it, though, was that was fear because mm-hmm. they were afraid. They, they saw what the Palestinians managed to do to the Israeli army inside 24 to 48 hours. And I think that they were there was a real fear then in the US and in Britain um, that the Israeli state could implode under mm. the pressure. And this was a rush to make it look as if Everybody is behind the Israeli government. You are the US is 100% behind it. Don't worry. Uh, mm-hmm. We will guarantee Israel's security because I think they were afraid of some kind of internal collapse triggered by the shock of the Al Aqsa flood operation. What, what's your opinion on that? I agree with you. I mean, uh, what we've seen is uh, the preoccupations and fear of Western powers materializing in the Eastern Mediterranean in the forms of uh, of, uh, of military flotillas, basically, military carriers. Hmm. Why? This, I think, connects fundamentally to, to the centrality of what you were talking about of Israel, to the, pro- to the American project of domination, or what we call US imperialism. Hmm. So once we establish that uh, imperialism is a system of worldwide control based uh, on the, the material exploitation of the South by countries of the North, which, as we know, includes elements, the collaboration of elements and segments, the so-called ruling classes of the South of the world. This material relation of exploitation and domination includes the use of military domination, uh, sanctions, as basically and neoliberal packages, basically the whole block of policies uh, represented by uh, the 
the Washington consensus that has over the years prevented the developing countries from using their internal resources for the purpose of regional and popular development. Uh, this is the material side of this uh, of imperialism. Then there is an ideological side to this, which can include the use of uh, gender ideology, any kind of developmental discourse or human rights in order to pursue regime changes and all kinds of things, you know. So which amps it out as well, even more the, the, the so-called liberal values. So for this project to consolidate, each continent and region of the world has uh, witnessed certain type of changes in Europe. As uh, as you know, I'm, I'm sure our our listeners knows uh, there has been the use of the strategy of tension, the funding mm. of you know the the Gladio operations, the funding of uh, reactionary and Nazi forces used to counter anything that could you know that would resemble or uh, uh, communism basically. In the Arab region now, and this is where we come to the Arab region. I mean, what we've seen a, a similar situation in uh, in the in Latin America in the sixties and seventies, where we had Operation Condor. So each region had a certain centrality to the American project of domination, to U.S. imperialism. Now, when we come to the Arab region, the situation is different, developed differently, but always as part of this um, big overall unit of U.S. imperialism. The Arab region, in fact, had uh, a unique role in, uh, especially after World War II, thanks to its oil wealth, especially due to its oil wealth. I mean, well, oil was a key natural resources for the economies of the imperialist countries, and so what the U.S. needed to do was to ensure guaranteed access to this oil, which doesn't mean the necessity to uh, to basically extract oil, but as long as it could control the the political. Uh, access to oil in the region. And so yeah. to achieve these goals, the American project operated in close cooperation with two elements. First, the Gulf uh, Israel, and secondly, the Gulf monarchies. So the Zionist entity, and I think this is where, you know, each uh, and every one of us, anti-imperial, you know, that we want to develop an anti a clear anti-imperialist position on what is happening today, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian struggle, really need to understand is that Israel became effect is effectively a U.S. military outpost in the region. There mm -hmm. is no, you know, this needs to be underlined so much because, you know, we go back to, oh, one state, two state, that's not the point. The point is, the moment you strike Israel, you're striking a U.S. military outpost in the region. And that yeah. is why the struggle is way bigger than it looks. Mm. So uh, if we look at U.S. Uh, congressional papers uh, that was recently published, uh, between 1943 and 2023, the U.S. provided Israel with $160 billion in aid, which in adjusted inflation reaches about 260 billions without considering their regular loan guarantees extended to, to Israel and the military packages. On this point, I have to repeat it over and over, Obama, the so-called most progressive president of the US who deliberately bombed Syria and, and Libya, provided Israel with 38 billion in military assistance, the largest aid package in US history. And, and this tells us what? That there is a centrality of war, not just to the enemy of the US. We all know the cycle of debt financing war for the US. The US releases uh, treasury bonds, which then the Western faithful allies and, it's, uh, and all the world buys them 
to finance the, the, the debt of the of the US, which then end up financing the war that the US can unleash on the south of the world. So this is where we understand the centrality of militarism to the US project. And in this project, Israel is a concentrated part of imperialism. And this is just when we look at the uh, at uh, basically uh, at the material elements at the at the so-called uh, uh, at the material reason of the existence of Israel as a military outpost. So Israel is an investment in militarism for for the U.S. It's not just a settler colonial formation as much as the U.S., but uh, it's a it's a military outpost because. Uh, through by acquiring uh, uh, nuclear weapons, Israel has progressively went to war with all countries in the region that tried to, as I was saying before, use their internal resources for a project for a project of popular and regional development that opposed U.S. imperialism. And this is where we see that Israel has gone to war with Egypt. It has bombed Iraq under Saddam Hussein. It it invaded Lebanon. It went to war in Syria in in, in the 2000s. So Israel has been a major force behind imperialist control and capital accumulation in the region. And it's corollary, corollary, which is Arab de-development. Yes. So, yeah. the, uh, I want to pick up on that uh, last po- point regarding uh, the underdevelopment of the Arab nations. And, of course, the uh, ferociously hostile response of first British and then American imperialism to uh, the project of um, para-Arab um, socialism that uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser was associated with, um, the uh, more successful elements of Ba'athism as well, and, of course, the Beyond, beyond even that, the uh, the attempt to forcibly suppress any uh, Arab communist parties <laughs> has been a uh, an obsession rooted in a very real material concern of imperialism since World War Two ended. And the the other point about this is that the value of having Israel there and the underdevelopment that uh, it helps to bring to Arab countries can be examined by looking at places like uh, Jordan. Run hmm. by a a a monarch by a monarchy that it was created by British imperialism, that still um, has British imperialism as one of its principal foreign investors, along with the United Arab Emirates. So control over a place like Jordan is almost absolute. It's very underdeveloped. The only plan that the Jordanian comprador elite has is to become like a transport hub and an energy hub. So like literally a transit point for other things, not developing their own industry, not developing their own agriculture, just a transit point for Saudi and the UAE mainly. Mm -hmm. And this and you you look further afield, you look at like what they've uh, tried to do with Lebanon, for instance, which is compile debt upon it deny it the chance to develop, continually try to destroy like any national liberation forces there be it the um, Palestinian and Lebanese left in the 70s or Hezbollah now. And as you say, Israel is central to this because by getting Israel to ignite, for instance, the 1967 war on um, Syria and Egypt, you help to dest- they helped to destroy the project of the United Arab Republic That's by right. fatally undermining Nasserism, um, inflicting a defeat on Ba'athist Syria, 
Um, so the, the the material value of Israel can be counted in the number of times that it has helped to destroy um, pan-Arab uh, developmentalist projects, not even socialist projects, but just projects which sought to um, bring the Arab world out of semi-feudalism even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Alex, you are absolutely right on what you're saying. It's uh, There is a centrality of war, of war to the imperialist project, uh, which is basically to uh, devalue uh, the lives of the South, of the global South, to extract, to make, uh, which translates in practical terms in the shorter longevity for the glo- for the global for the masses of the global South. Mm-hmm. And in doing this, you know, Israel has played a key region in the Middle East. I mean, and this is why it's so important to understand, again, this connection, because uh, and and also leads us to talk about uh, the centrality of the Gulf monarchies in this and the relationship with oil. You know, the moment you allow uh, oil uh, to be uh, to uh, to be um, to make oil uh, dollar denominated oil sales, you control the global economy. And once this oil is then reinvested in treasury bonds, basically refinancing American wars or in buying American military weapons, you see the whole, you know, the square circle, sorry, not the the circle uh, closes, you know, like there is a continuity basically between the, the centrality of war for the American project to maintain its political and military hegemony. And at the same time, in this imperialist web, you can appreciate really and understand the key role that not just Israel, but the Gulf monarchies have played in sustaining the American project in the region and inevitably having to normalize the Zionist entity. And this is why we've seen in the last years this uh, huge push towards the normalization of Israel. Uh, I am sure our listeners probably did see, but it's really worth saying, and and probably you saw it, Alex, this video circulating recently where the Saudi foreign minister is basically listing how the Gulf monarchies has had allowed to, uh, to push back and to face any challenges political challenges, radical, he defines them, political challenges emanating from the region. And it's precisely what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. He says, we defeated Nasserism and radical actors in the in the, in the the 60s and the 70s. We can still do this now, but I don't think they can. This is the problem there. This is where we can see that there is a new project emanating from the region, this axis of resistance that is, has nothing to do, uh, first and foremost, with uh, radical Islam or Islamic fundamentalism despite whatever the media they want to tell us, but they're actually, you know, preparing and they're trying to craft a completely different sense of uh, 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 of, uh, of revolutionary humanism in the region, drawing, drawing on one of the most important cultural aspects uh, of, uh, of the same region, which is Islam. And that's it's not absolutely surprising, shouldn't be surprising to anybody, particularly to a I mean, unfortunately, it remains, you know, something that Western leftists still are not able to digest because they keep going around with this checklist thinking that, you know, uh, resistance movements uh, in the region should be 
secular, gender sensitive, uh, and mm. possibly even funded by the when uh, Western NGOs. There's nothing to do. I mean, as per history's mandate, we have to repeat this. Hamas have, and the, all the other political factions happen to represent and to lead the struggle for national liberation of the Palestinians at this moment. And mm. and you know, and there is nothing despite our you know arrogance when we you know can uh, we label what they should be doing them what they should do we should probably learn something from what it's happening around the world and bring it back home yes uh i mean the the point you make there about this being like a new wave of uh region-wide liberation uh struggle uh that is going on this is a point that's been specifically made by hassan nasrallah of um, yes. hezbollah in the two speeches he has given in the past month, particularly the one on Martyrs Day recently, mm-hmm. he made uh, a very interesting contribution, I think, that reminded me specifically of the the talk that became an essay from uh, Mao Zedong, um, mm-hmm. where he t- talked about protracted war. Mm-hmm. And Nasrallah recalled that. Um, he didn't mention it, but I'm sure he's aware of it, which is mm-hmm. where he said, we began our liberation struggle in the early 1980s with the bombing of um, an Israeli military operations center in the Lebanese city of Tyre. Mm-hmm. And from that moment, uh, he says that we have been struggling against not just Israel, but against U.S. domination of Lebanon. Yes. And that this struggle is now 40 years old. And sometimes it has had um, violent ele- violent elements. It's been a war. Sometimes it's been a lower intensity war. Yes. And he went on to say that there is now a regional struggle going on with, of which Palestine is the center, but also has elements in Syria and Iraq, where the the war is to remove the influence of U.S. imperialism. And he specifically says that the struggle against Israel is a struggle against the United States. Like Israel has no existence without the U.S. backing it up, and so it's a it's a battle to, um, as as he identified it, um, reassert the sovereignty of all these countries mm-hmm. and remove the colonial domination. Which I thought, given that that the, uh, most Western leftists would dismiss Nasrallah as like a <laughs> fundamentalist or something like that, and yet there. He's speaking in terms that are, are completely in line with what um, thinkers such as Mao or Castro or Che Guevara would exactly. s- would say about the liberation struggle, isn't he? I, uh, you know, what you're saying uh, is uh, is a pleasure for me to hear because um, first there is uh, this utter incapacity. This, uh, you know, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that. Uh, uh, we have, we do uh, a lot of uh, the left in Europe, uh, in the Western core, really lives under uh, the imperialist privilege, and is not really capable to understand how they turned uh, a practical process of uh, of thinking like Marxism, which uh, needs to have programmatic consequences over the life of people, into a book club. So basically what we see is people trying to label what it's happening here and there. Should we use violence? Should we do this? Should we do not? Whereas 
this is absolutely a war of liberation. This is ex- I completely agree with what you're saying. I think at this historical moment in time in the Arab region, Hassan Nas- Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah represents one of the most uh, historical materialist thinker that we could ever have. Uh, his capacity to to capture what it's happening and also you know to define the the lines of the struggle so clearly from the start you know even when he had this very first speech uh, a month after the start of the operation Laksa flood uh, on Martyrs day he was uh, he was basically he didn't even address Israel he spoke directly to the US because he knows who's open, you know, who's administering the war. There is no need to go around it. Like the understanding that these forces have on the ground is so uh, is so clear. It's so enlightening at the same time. Even when uh, you know he was talking about will Hezbollah escalate the war? Will we do this? Will we do that? Even is the material, the historical materialism that you really. Uh, his speeches excuse you can see when he's referring to we shouldn't be you shouldn't be looking at what I am going to say you just need to look at the battlefield mm. and again it's a praxis it's a practical process it's history unfolding on our eyes when every time a Merkava tank flips and this is mm. how you are rewriting history this is how you're going to reach a new and possibly better international order where the global south is going to be treated, the whole masses of the global south are going to be treated equally and not in this, uh, you know, humiliated by a veto of the US or France or Britain who can think they can just do basically whatever they want. Hmm. Well, this is um, this is the turning point, uh, but I think it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a turning point which probably started earlier. Um, perhaps you could ident- identify its uh, turning point beginning with the, um, the the Russian special military operation in yeah. Ukraine, of which, and now the, I mean, I, I, I'm aware of the, the, the Operation Al-Aqsa Flood has been planned for possibly as long as two years, but possibly, yeah. it, it fits in with a broader um sweep that's going on and um you you've mentioned uh the the role of european imperialism the diminished role of european imperialism um that's also been demonstrated by the fact that french imperialism has been defeated mm. in in niger it's been defeated in mali it's being defeated in burkina faso um who have managed to uh, start the process of removing French military domination from their countries. And then, of course, the the ability of the French to extract value from the hyper-exploitative relationship that they have with those countries is now going to be removed bit by bit by bit, thus creating a new crisis within the French imperial core. Because without the ability to hyper-exploit Niger or Mali or any of the old French colonial possessions, French capitalism itself gets called into question because it's so dependent upon the extraction of um, super profits from those areas. And so the to bring it back again to the question of the the, the fate of like the the imperial core countries, um, as the US empire starts to weaken, and mm-hmm. you've talked about before um, how the uh, the US empire is the, the U- US imperialists are the center of the um 
of the uh, the glo- of the the Western system. Like without mm. U.S. imperialism, um, French, British, and Italian capitalism don't get rebuilt after World War II without mm-hmm. their direct intervention. And without U.S. imperialism, the those nations, th- those ruling classes, don't survive. I don't think um, after World yeah. War II. Yeah. So the there is a historic debt which um, the ruling class of Britain and the, most of the rest of Europe owes to U.S. imperialism. Mm-hmm. So does that, in your mind, explain partly why they are so absolutely welded to U.S. <laughs> imperialism in Ukraine, over Israel, over everything now? Like there's there's liberals even in Britain who are running around and scratching their heads going, well, why on earth is Europe so as wedded to the U.S. now as Britain is? <laughs> and I think it's it's my view is that it's um, uh, the, the long term effect of that domination by the U.S. over Europe, but also that the European economies are diminishing rapidly now. And yeah. so the ruling classes are desperately clinging to U.S. imperialism because they don't know what else to do. And that, of course, accompanies a turn towards ever more um bonapartist and um yeah overtly fascist methods of rule inside europe but i wanted to get your your opinion on that the the fate of the european countries as as part of the diminishing us imperialist bloc it's a it's a dark fate i think at this moment it's a very profound existential question even for someone like me which and, and you obviously you know that we're sitting here in the imperial core in the West, in Europe, uh, as you rightly mentioned, you know the progressive economic crisis of China, two military interventions of Russia, because there is also the one that you know took place in 2015 against uh, the the U.S.-led regime change in Syria, and then against the NATO encroachment in Ukraine. All these uh, elements, and also the formations of 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 uh, political and cultural, you know, economic blocks from the global south, like the BRICS, all these elements have thrown the US and its allies into a geopolitical nightmare. So Mm. the unipolar moment starts, we can see starts to crumble. I mean, if you read uh, even Giovanni Arrighi, he basically says that, you know, this moment starts with the defeat of the US in 2003 in Iraq Mm. and so on and so forth. In any case, and 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 on top of this, then you have this wave of military coup in West Africa against French Western colonialism, the, the increasing assertiveness of Iran, and also the capacity of countries of the South to withstood decades of sanctions. You know, Cuba, Venezuela. Now, yeah. what I, I think it's important in, uh, uh, to understand is that, uh, uh, and I really like uh, there is an article by Utsa and Prabhat Patnaik, two Indian Marxist economists where they basically identify three main elements of of the rise of a new ideological moment. Uh, And what I call, at least myself, uh, is this renewed wave of fascism, materially, rhetorically, and ideologically in the West. So Mm. on the face of this pressure and these challenges, the West has gone fascist. Why? There are three major conditions, according to, you know, to Utsan Prabhat Panaik. The first one is the existence of a crisis. And I think this is precisely what we've been describing. It's the crisis and decline of the U.S. imperialism faced by the rise of the countries of the South, which are demanding to be treated equally. The South has responded with fascism. 
The second element is that the Western ruling classes have no capacity to overcome this crisis. Why? Because they don't want to accept them as equal actors. Mm. To do so would mean to go to the table and redraw the boundaries of the international order. Third, and this is where the element that it's really speaking back to people like me and you, is the complete state of disarray of the left in Europe. Yes. And the latter, I think, I mean, as you know, as as I know you, you also do, is what we personally consider the most critical aspect. Because the syntax basically existing in this historical moment in Europe and across the West is a fascist syntax. Every political forces expresses themselves through this uh, fascism, through right wing, uh, through right wing, you know, uh, language. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, at some point we had Donald Trump winning uh, the elections in 2016, and then he loses, and we're like, oh look, maybe there is uh, the coming back of uh, of uh, of, uh, of the liberal uh, uh, empire. But what we see after that is Giorgia Meloni in Italy. You know, Macron going fascist in France. Let's not talk about Britain because <laughs> you know better, and I'm sure you explained it better than I do. The European classes, ruling classes, are basically ready to sacrifice everything for the mighty US. And this certainly goes back to what you were talking about, to the material interdependence that they, uh, that uh, that uh, Europe has with the US. And the Mm. fact that also the centrality of war, and we go back where we started from, there is a centrality of war, of war, not just as, uh, you know, uh, as an object, when we think of militarism or the military industrial complex. No, war is a process, is a process that devalues also humanity. And and this process, this uh, centrality of war, of killing, people over and over has been so important, fundamental to the rise of US imperialism and to the West as a whole, historically. At mm. this moment, what we're seeing is that the US is ready to bring war in directly into Europe. Mm. And and when a, a, such a key cog of the imperialist web is, is, is under threat like Israel, they are ready to bring war, you know, back again on the table. We shouldn't be looking at war as accountants, you know, because if we look at war as accountants, we're going to see, oh, look, war is not good for the economy. No, we need to look at war as a process uh, as of creation of value. This is, you know, a Marxist understanding to war. And when we start doing so, we realize that war is so important for the ruling classes. So why am I saying this? Am I saying this because if the European and the Western ruling class as a whole, they went back to fascism, what we really need to start thinking is how much they are bent to bring us back into a theater of violence and war. And this is Mm. scary because that is their survival. Sorry, Alex. Uh, I was going to say the point about encroaching or growing fascism, I think it's... Um, to draw on what you were saying about like Trump, Maloney, Macron, these figures, I think that there is a mistake made by the Western left in attaching the the fascist label purely to one political actor or another. Yes, yes. the fascist turn is yes. in the ruling class itself. Yes, yes, because it is as you were saying, it is the material conditions here which are dictating it. 
their system is now declining and hence why they and it has been for a long time i mean the, mm-hmm. the 2008 was a a material manifestation of a much deeper and long running crisis i mean certain theorists um who uh use things like the declining rate of profit to point mm. to um long term crisis will say that there was a massive crisis from the middle 60s to the early 80s which the imperialist countries resolved through internal um, suppression of the working class but m- perhaps more importantly the the gl- the the western driven globalization process which enabled um through the development of certain area economic areas in the global south greater hyper exploitation of those mm-hmm. areas mm-hmm. and bringing profits back into the imperial core again and so the rate of profit goes up in, in the early from the early to mid 80s to the early 2000s but it never recovers to the point it was at after world war 2 mm-hmm. and so it is a diminishing return and now that boost that they've got is being removed because as as you were saying the the global south countries might not call themselves communist or socialist anymore mm-hmm. but simply by demanding from an institution like the european union that it tr- de- that it deliver trade or relations with so we say african nations that aren't designed around being hyper exploitative and keeping those nations underdeveloped well the european countries can't do that they can't deliver so called fair trade because the entire relationship is built on being able to hyper exploit these countries and keep them in a state of underdevelopment uh and so the europeans and the americans can't and won't deliver that and so the they will try and lash out they will try and create um internal problems in these countries they will tr- they will sponsor for instance in places like mali and niger jihadist organizations to try and destroy governments mm-hmm. there uh because that's all they can do they can't respond by acting fairly and by establishing you know sovereign state to sovereign state relations and in the 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 internal politics of the imperial core countries uh, what you see is this this lurch to fascism is because of that crisis they can't just adapt they they can't they refuse to change their model because they can't mm-hmm. and so you get all this crap that they talk about defense of civilization i mean you must have heard it as much as i have about we've got to support you know the banderists in ukraine oh. to defend western civilization now you decode that and what it means is they have a material need to destroy the putin led government and system That's right. in order that they can um reimpose a yeltsin figure in russia or break it up entirely in order to hyper exploit the resources there yeah that's the material need that's where it all comes from yeah and so to return to the question of the western left the western left cannot adapt to any of this they cannot analyze properly the national liberation movement in palestine no. or more regionally with regard to the role of hezbollah or the the role that the islamic republic of iran plays mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because they the western left is rooted in what i and other comrades uh in my party in britain called the, the labor aristocracy yes um it is rooted in certain forms of bourgeois academia and the ngo system 
all of which directly profit from imperialism. Absolutely. What that has created is a left that is completely in-house for the bourgeoisie. Um, uh, To draw on an old saying of Stalin's, like the ultra-leftist deviation is in reality a rightist one. And so ultra-leftist demands about how the Palestinians um, can't be supported because, you know, have Hamas, or we can't support um, Hezbollah because they use Islamic um, mm-hmm. teachings and philosophies in their, their both their, their propaganda and their internal philosophy. We can't possibly um, say that Iran plays a progressive role because it, of its internal politics, that kind of thing. All of those purity tests... Are actually uh, sound very left, but in actual fact, their objective effect is to destroy solidarity movements mm-hmm. and to strengthen the hold of imperialism over the working class movement in the imperial core countries, to make um, a broader solidarity movement impossible to build by demanding that uh, issuing demands that will never be met and confusing people as to the nature of the national liberation struggle and why we should support it. But I wanted to get your views on that question, on the, the Western left and how it's... Is it in your view that this is a, a, is, a is an in-house bourgeois creation now? Absolutely. I mean, uh, we have more Marxist professors than uh, an actual communist party in the West. <laughs> so that is already telling of the, of the place in which we are right now. Uh, First, I mean, if we could say that there is hardly any left left in the West, you know what I mean? It's uh, it's we we reached a point where uh, we got center right liberals, right and then right wing political parties. And I really appreciated your point about not labeling individuals as fascist, but the type in which we are drowning as fascist, because the conditions in which we are you know, facilitate the rise of fascism. And it's not one figure or another that is fascist. This is a very important point that, uh, you know, needs to be emphasized. Uh, the majority of progressive intellectuals of the West right now, from what I've seen, are supporting this genocide. Because, you know, basically we are busy looking at for the right talent or kind of violence, uh, you know, I've seen even stuff, uh, pieces, articles telling that, uh, you know, the Palestinian resistance, they need to read Fanon if they really want to become a, lo- uh, a movement of national liberation. This is wild. I mean, you've seen the, the op-eds that came out right after October 7 by people like Naomi Klein, Judith Butler, uh, Adam Schatz. This is, a, this is a bourgeois book club. Uh, it's an aristocratic uh, uh, intellectual masturbation taking place, basically, Mm. because uh, while they enjoy their imperialist privilege, they keep theorizing uh, what progressive forces in the south of the world should look like. At the same time, they entertain the idea that Russia, China, Iran, Venezuela are imperialist or sub-imperialist players in our current era. And what you're basically doing in this process is that you are making war against those countries palatable to your own working masses. Mm. Because if we leave, that's the idea. And this is where I really, you know, I really have a, you know, I really have a problem with the inter-imperialist competition uh, uh, suggestion by certain Marxists, whatever, you know, what you want to call them, because they are basically suggesting that there is a competition. And so it is better that we stay ahead of these countries. We are better than them at defending democratic freedom and values. Mm. which is complete nonsense, according to me. Because again, we go back to, to what uh, 
what you were discussing about and which one of the one of the last i would say italian marxist thinker domenico losurdo really explained it very well in his book called uh, uh, la um come uh, uh, sorry the the is coming in italian uh the end of Western Marxism, basically, how it, yes. how it became, how it died, and how it can be reborn. The idea was, and Losurdo really is so, it clearly explains this process because it says, Mark, so-called Western Marxism has generated a new form of cultural imperialism. The moment you excommunicate most of the world progressive forces, especially from the South, and you start theorizing about whether or not they, their models of development are Marxist, rather than including them in the leftist, in the Marxist historical process. Through this move, Western Marxism has basically accelerated its own hand. So yeah. we theorize about imperialism while enjoying the imperialist privilege. And at the same time, this intellectual aristocracy is not capable to appreciate what's coming from the South. These ideas that instead incarnate liberation because they emerge from the rat that imperialism has brought upon them. So this is, I think, I uh, I, I think that this is one of the moment again that this, the national liberation of the national liberation movement in Palestine is telling us that listen, you need to wake up. But I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, I, I think the, the Western left will probably have to, certainly the British left, will probably have to die a thousand deaths before it can be reborn again. <laughs> um, but um, I, I I see um, signs of hopefulness in the, the fact that it is so completely cut off from um, the working class will mean that when there is yeah. a working class movement again, uh, the Western left will have nothing to do with it. It will be <laughs> a movement that will be that will leave them behind. And I think that's the best thing we can do now. Um, the traditional left is dead. It failed. Um, the best thing we can do is to move past it. And however small our forces are to begin with, to start the, the rebuilding process. And I, I've said this before, but I think that Marxism only comes back into Europe if it if the thought process uh, the, of, the, of us in the West get, takes us via the lessons of Russia, China, Vietnam, the yeah. DPRK, Cuba, um, South America as a whole, and then back again. Only by learning all of that and yeah. all of those lessons can we actually start to apply Marxism again properly in our own countries. Because if we stick to the so-called Western leftist tradition, we'll still be arguing about whether um, Herbert Marcuse um, was right or whether we should read more <laughs> Foucault, and both of those are useless arguments. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, uh, Matteo Capasso, um, I think it's a good point to leave this on today. Thank you for joining me for what's been a very interesting discussion. And if you haven't read it already, I would encourage everybody to um, check out um, what we discussed last time, which is Matteo's work on uh, Libya. I'll leave a link in the show notes to uh, where you can find uh, that particular work. Uh, Matteo, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. A pleasure to be with you. Okay. بلد السلام أرض الأديان كنا بنعيش مبسوطين في أمان صحيت الإيد وطني محتل
Chow, 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 chow,